0: of Community Bible Church on the web at wagp.net Good morning and welcome to the Light 88.7 FM Bible Live a live radio call in with Dr. Carl Brogi Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort South Carolina and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero. 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl
1: Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome, as always, to the Bible line. It's great to be here today. And if you have a particular question concerning God's word or a challenge you're facing in your life or an issue that you'd like biblical counsel on, that's why we're here, here in 2013. And if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us. Again, the number locally is 525-1859, 525 we have a toll-free number that you can use. It's 877-WAGP. Call letters of our station, 877-WAGP-980. Or if you like, you can email us. We get a ton of emails sometimes during the broadcast, during the week. Um, We also have a new Bible line hotline that you can call here at the station, and you can leave a voice message as if you were on the air. And again, as always, when the Bible line is finished, uh, Rick posts it online at wagp.net, and uh, the questions that we answer for a given day are listed. You can kind of scroll through and see, oh yeah, mine's the 10th question, and Uh, find it. You don't necessarily have to listen to the whole Bible line. You can just listen to segments of it till you find your question and hopefully get an answer that will be helpful to you. So the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. Um, and when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We've had a lot of questions that have come in via email, so we're going to try to respond to some of those today, but we will take live callers as always. Again, that local number is 525-1859. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick.
0: All right, very good. Um, One listener writes, I've been listening to your eschatology teachings, and you mentioned the second coming of Christ. Would it not be technically the third coming of Christ? One, Christ came as a baby to earth and did his ministry until about age 33. Two, Christ was crucified and came back to life, and many people witnessed this. And then three, Christ will return like a thief in the night in the end times. So when Christ comes back, wouldn't that technically be the third time?
1: Well, I guess definition is everything, and remember when we use terms uh, very often, they're not always found in the Bible. But they are theological catchwords to describe a a biblical truth, like the term Trinity. Uh, not Not a noun found in the Bible, but certainly a great word to describe the triunity of God, that God is one manifested in three distinct persons. So when we refer to the comings of Christ, we often refer to the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the first coming when he was born, Uh, lived a life here upon the earth, died, buried, and was raised again. That's all in the first coming program. Uh, When people use the term second coming, they usually use it in two ways, either the second coming program or a particular event within the broader span of that program. So uh, if you use it in terms of the second coming program, then people often, when they talk about the second coming of Christ, they're referring to the catching up of the church Uh, We shall all be caught up in the Latin translation of the 4th century done by Jerome. The word is rapto, and so we use the theological word rapture to describe that catching up. Now, people debate whether or not um, the rapture is taught. Some say that. They'll say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible, so it must be a non-biblical truth. Well, the word trinity is not in the Bible, and I hope you believe that. Again, it's a, it's a theological catch word based on the Latin translation. But if you want to use harpazo, the Greek word there, caught up, it, we can say, well, the catching up of the church. Now, people debate when that will happen, whether it will happen at the beginning of the tribulation, in the middle, at the end, some argue for a partial rapture. I mean, there's, a, there's been different positions in the history of the church. But when we speak of the Second Coming program, we're speaking of the catching up of the church, Christ's literal physical return to the earth, not only when we meet him in the air, but when he comes back to the earth, literally reigns for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, uh, we go into the eternal state. Uh, So sometimes that's referred to as the second coming program, including everything from the rapture all the way to the new heaven and the new earth at the end of the millennium. Sometimes people use the term second coming just to refer to a singular event within that program where at the end of the great tribulation period, Jesus literally comes to the earth. Or some don't think he literally comes to the earth, but he's just coming again physically, bodily, again, to judge the living and the dead. So uh, that's a great question. I hope that helps. Um, If you listen to the whole course on eschatology, it's a long course, but for the student of Scripture who really has a heart to study, um, you will learn the whole the uh, spiel of terms and issues and uh, different positions people have taken in the history of the church.
0: 525-1859, toll free 877-WAGP 980. And we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Yeah, Dr. Brother, I've got a question concerning, you know, the book of Revelations when it's speaking of the 12 tribes and the 12,000 of each tribe has chosen to be called some different conversations you know we've been having in a small group um can you go into detail and maybe explain that a little better is there only 144,000? people? is there more um and can you kind of just go through that part of the, the bible
1: sure i'd uh, be happy to one? thank you yeah um he's our caller if you're not familiar with the book of revelation he's uh, referring to revelation chapter 7 and uh, John describes uh, this tremendous scene in heaven and what takes place on the earth. And he said, I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from Reuben, 12,000, and so forth. And then after he describes the sealing of these 12 tribes, He said, after these, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches. So you have these 144,000 sealed and one of the significance of the sealing as you read in the revelation is these are God's servants who are protected. And interestingly, they're taken from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel Um, The tribe of Dan, interestingly enough, is omitted, if you read this list carefully, and that's due to some things that God said in Judges 18 and 1 Kings 12 about their idolatry, and so they're replaced in practice uh, in terms of the privilege of this ministry that God gives during the time of the Great Tribulation by the tribe of Manasseh. And uh, God, God warned uh, in the book of Deuteronomy 29, when he gives the blessings and curses through Moses, that idolaters would ultimately be separated from the other tribes. And God did just what he said and warned Dan didn't heed their, his warning. And so they suffered the consequences. So right now, for the most part, let me just kind of paint a broad picture. Uh, there are Jewish people who are Christians. Uh, they are a minority of Jewish people. And that's been true since the inception of the church, such that John can write in John 1 and 11 and 12, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he's given the right to become children of God. Now that doesn't mean that none of the Jews received him, because John himself in that same gospel describes many of the Jewish people who did believe. But for the most part, as a whole, not just the leadership, but as the leaders go, often the people go. The people as a whole did not respond to Jesus as Messiah. Now that doesn't mean again that there weren't any. All of the apostles were Jews. The first seven chapters of the book of Acts, every single conversion recorded is that of a Jewish person. So in the day of Pentecost there is, you know, three thousand heads of households that are saved. A short time later, Peter gets up, he preaches another powerful sermon. 5,000 men, excluding women and children, are saved. So you see this church that's growing and and multiplying that's largely Jewish. But once that initial ingathering of the Jewish people took place, uh, there was a hardening A resistance towards the rest of the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the church largely went to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean we exclude Jews. We don't exclude any people. We are to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. But God told us this would happen. In fact, he gives a very detailed explanation of why it happened and the ultimate implications of it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In Romans 9, Paul describes Israel's election. In Romans 10... He describes Israel's rejection. In Romans 11, he describes their future restoration. So there's coming a time in the future when the Jewish people are going to turn to Jesus and believe that he was indeed, and is indeed, their promised Messiah. It's going to happen during what, during the time frame that the Old Testament calls, not the Great Tribulation, but the time of Jacob's trouble though it describes it like Matthew 24 and Daniel 12 as a time of awful tribulation. And so Jesus refers to the prophet Daniel in the Olivet Discourse. And so we read in Daniel 12 in verse 2, And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued. And so he's describing this time of great tribulation, and he's referring to Daniel's people, the Jewish people, and if their names are written in the book, they're going to be rescued. They're going to be saved. And so, again, that's one of the functions of the great tribulation period. Now, there's a book God has. It's called the Book of Life. In fact, there's a number of books that God has. I preached a, a sermon once on God's library, but one of the books in God's library is called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are the names of all the people, Jew and Gentile alike, who had come to faith in Jesus as Lord. And so God knows who those people are. He's omniscient. It doesn't in any way change your free will and your ability to respond to Christ in faith, but he knows. And that's why three times over in the revelation before God even created the world, knowing what man would do, knowing what his son would do, knowing how people would respond, he can put the name of every person who would receive his son as Savior. Sometimes there's an old song we used to sing, there's a new name written down in glory. And I would say, well, not really. It was written there before the foundation of the world. There was a check mark maybe put next to that name because that person came to the genuine faith. So God's going to use the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, to bring Jewish people to faith. Now, part of the process is 12 tribes from the nation of Israel. 12 literal tribes where he chooses in his sovereign providence, 12,000 people from each of these tribes. How are they going to be converted? We're not told, but we do know from the chronology of the revelation. And by the way, it's called the book of Revelation. It's not revelations. There's one revelation that God gives through his son to his people and to the apostle John. And so in the revelation that God gives, it happens chronologically early in the time of Jacob's trouble, and these 144,000 people who are saved, and how are they saved? Well, maybe after the church is raptured, these are people saying, you know, all these thousands of evangelical Christians who came through Israel. By the way, I just read an article last week um, by one of the leaders of the nation of Israel, and he said, evangelical Christians are our friends. Not everyone who calls himself Christians are our friends, but these evangelical Christians are our friends. They realize that. They sense that. When tens of thousands of them from all over the world go to Israel every year to visit that great country, they know that they love the Jewish people because they understand what Paul has said in Romans nine, ten, and 11, that God in his mercy has grafted us in. And if we have responded how we have responded, what's going to happen when the root comes to faith? And so they recognize that just as God used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming, He's going to use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming of Messiah. And so there's a future for Israel. Now, whether they have a, you know, Damascus Road type of conversion, these 144,000, they might. I don't know. Maybe they'll say, "Hey, look, remember all these Jewish, all these Gentile Christians were talking to us, and they were obviously right." And they begin to pour over the Scripture and. 144,000 out of those who believe are sealed and set apart. And so no one can harm them. And the reason is because God loves people and God wants people to be saved. And these become the Billy Grahams of the great tribulation period. These are the people who preach to not just Jewish people, but to the Gentiles of the world such that John, after he describes these 144,000 that are sealed, can describe a great number from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are in heaven. And these people are in heaven because they had already come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, and they were slaughtered for their faith. These are the ones, John says, who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these were people who were unwilling to yield to the leadership and authority of the Antichrist, and they're martyred here early in the tribulation period, even before the seventh seal is, uh, is loosed, opening up the trumpet judgments. So I hope that helps. Um, I, I, again, I did a series on eschatology. Eschatos is a Greek word for for end times, and so I did a, a series on the end times, and it's uh, like 50 messages that I did on Wednesday nights. In part of that series, I go through various highlights in Revelation. I actually pick it up in Revelation 4 where a door is opened in heaven. And so I, I deal like a chapter a week. And so you might want to listen Just to that one message on Revelation 7, if you want to go a little bit deeper, that might be very, very helpful to you. All right, let's go to the next question, Rick.
0: All right. um, Our next listener emailed their question. They write, why does the Bible teach in Genesis 3, verse 14, that snakes eat dirt when we know
1: they don't? Well, they do eat dirt. And now they don't eat dirt maybe the way you would eat dirt, but snakes eat dirt. Uh, When I preached my series on Genesis, I tried to deal with as many of the objections that I could that people have. And, of course, the most vigorously attacked book in all of of the Bible is the book of Genesis, and primarily the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Satan knows if he can destroy the foundations, he can ruin everything else. In the book of Genesis, Genosius in Greek means beginnings. Uh, there is a different title in the Hebrew Bible. They call the book of Genesis Barashit. And Barashit is the very first word in Genesis one one, And we translate it with three English words, in the beginning. Remember, the titles for the book of the Bibles are not inspired. They're put there to help us find our way around, to find the right scroll at a given time in history or in our Bibles today as we flip through. Oh, there's Matthew, there's Obadiah, there's Jeremiah, there's Proverbs, to find the book we're looking for. So those weren't inspired. They're there just to be helpful. And the first five books of the Bible, we actually have Greek names in our English Bible. But the Book of Beginnings is a foundational book, and so Satan attacks it because he realizes if he can destroy the foundations, he can ruin everything. And so the liberal critics love to attack, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They say, well, you know, this is not, you know, a creation account. This is just some parable, some spiritual story that maybe teaches us some spiritual truth. But there was not real people called Adam and Eve, they would argue Uh, there's not one creation account, they'll say there's two, there's not one author of the Pentateuch, there's five, There was not a real person named Noah or a worldwide flood, and on and on the critics go. And so they pick apart the account. One thing that they often say is, well, snakes don't eat dirt. Well, the truth is they do. Depends on your definition of eating. Uh, Snakes have a little forked tongue. You've seen it before, and they spit that thing in and out, in and out, in and out. And what they actually do on occasion, if you watch them carefully, is they'll touch the dust, the dirt, with the tongue. And they take it, and it goes back into the upper level of their mouth into an organ called the Jacobson organ. And it's designed by their creator where that little fork goes into a matching uh, female receptor where the little fork is put in the top of the mouth. And the snake tastes the dirt, and he senses his surroundings and what is taking place. It's an extrasensory system that God has put in the snake. So they do eat dirt, Um, and that's well established. For some of you dads who maybe have some timid wives who don't like snakes, and you want to educate your children, next time you kill a snake, uh, see if you can cut him in half with a shovel without taking off his head. Um, and then after he's dead, open his head up. It would be very instructive uh, for your children because you can see, if you look really carefully, and some snakes you may have to pull out a magnifying glass, you can see the Jacobson's organ. I, I think I covered this in my uh, series on Genesis. I don't know. There were so many issues. I, I think I certainly covered it, though, in my Bibliology series where I did alleged discrepancies in the Bible but again, the passage is uh, that is in reference to is uh, from Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 14 and 15. Because you've done this curse to you more than all the cattle, more than all the beasts of the field And on your belly, you shall go and dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. And so the snake does indeed, through um, the little tongue that he has and the little organ located on the front of the roof of the mouth, that's that a chemical receptor of sorts. He smells and tastes with that and senses uh, and analyzes his surroundings. So he does eat dust. All Good right. question. Let's go to the next one. By the way, you know, people say evolution is all just evolved. And any animal, the human body, any any microscopic uh, creature that God has made, it, the, the design is so incredible. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God.
0: Mm. Very good. 525 toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at Kelvin from Lancaster, New Hampshire writes, I'm reading Chip Ingram's book on spiritual warfare. Do you have others to recommend? We're in a real battle here in New Hampshire and our seven-year-old is struggling.
1: Uh, we broadcast out of the capital of New Hampshire, Concord. Um, I'm not exactly sure where Lancaster is in reference to Concord. Maybe they're listening up there. Uh, In either case, um, we we broadcast out of WCBI in Maine, and then they have a translator station that covers, I know, the Concord area. Maybe Lancaster's close to that. I've not read Chip Ingram's book on spiritual warfare. Um, If I remember correctly, I think he went to Dallas Seminary. So he probably read the same books that I read, and most of the books that I've read aren't anything new. They're just kind of a rewrite of what's been done in the past. Uh, When you look at the subject of angels, interestingly, it's not really until the uh, early part of the 20th century that the church does extensive uh, teaching and exploration on the subject of angelology. At different times in the history of the church, there have been different theological subjects that have been... Uh, focused on and analyzed in the early church, largely the deity of Christ in dealing with all of the heresies against uh, either his humanity or his deity or both. Um, A little bit later in the third and fourth centuries, largely the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, There comes a time when the uh, world moves into a dark ages and there's just not a lot that is written that is available for us to explore and to read But during the times of uh, preceding the Reformation and after, there begins to be a focus on the doctrine of soteriology, salvation, and bibliology in terms of our authority to speak from. And in the 19th century, really for the first time in a concerted way, and again, it's not that the church didn't address these issues, but there was deep, uh, intense study. You had a study on and then on the in the nineteenth century on eschatology, uh, which I think is interesting because that's really developed in the last hundred or so years, and that would make sense too in light of the fact that we're living, I think, in the last of the last days that God's people are alerted to this issue. But in the early nineteen uh, hundreds, for about nineteen hundred 1900 and nineteen thirty. Uh, One of the areas that liberals attacked was the subject of angelology, and so the church did a lot of work in that time frame, and a lot of good works were produced. In terms of spiritual warfare, kind of the classic textbook that hasn't changed much was written by a seminary professor at Dallas Seminary in the 1950s by the name of Merle Unger, and he entitled it, Your Adversary, the Devil. And just about every book I've read on spiritual warfare, I can see they're reading Dr. Unger's book. Uh, it, it's obvious. And I've not read Chip Ingram's book. Maybe uh, he's got something original, but there's really nothing new under the sun. Yeah, he uh,
0: typically is in Ephesians 6 and covers the you know suit of armor
1: there. I see. Okay. Well, Dr. Unger's book is much, much more detailed. It's really a systematic theology on the subject of The Devil and Spiritual Warfare, and and to date, I've yet to see a better book written. It's very, very well done. If you go to half.com, that's the uh, eBay side of used books. Since that book was first published in the uh, 1950s, you could easily find it at a reduced price, and, uh, you know, I want to use local Christian bookstores wherever I can, but um, sometimes if you're looking for an older book... um, And very often people do not want to put an older book in back in print because, you know, publishers are interested usually in selling what's new. Uh, But if you typed in Dr. Merrill Unger, more than likely you're going to find his book and you'll be able to, you know, sometimes these books that initially cost, you know, a lot of money, uh, even if they've gone through a reprint. And Dr. Unger's book has gone through many reprints, Um, you can find an old edition for like 99 cents or whatever. So you might check there or Amazon. They sell a lot of used Christian books as well and save yourself a little money. Anyway, let's go to the next question.
0: All right. Our next email came from Richard in Richmond Hill, Georgia. And he would like to know, what do you think about churches that have a rock concert atmosphere for one group and a slow, slow, slow atmosphere for another group? These
1: groups meet at different times on Sunday. Well, without being unkind, just to put it very bluntly, I think it's silly. Um, Again, this is a a byproduct of the seeker-sensitive movement. What happened, I think, uh, during the uh, 80s through guys like Bill Heibel and uh, through teachers like him, they began to take a new approach and they said, well, what we need to do is we need to cater Sunday morning to the unbeliever. And of course, um, they saw, you know, incredible growth in their churches from small churches to peoples of thousands. Um, And so a lot of uh, churches wanted to copy this. They said, well, we want our church to grow and we want people to come. And so they would try some of these uh, new approaches to Sunday morning, and it became very offensive in a lot of congregations. Some people didn't like it. So they created two kinds of services. They call one a contemporary service, and they call another a traditional service. In fact, I went by a church yesterday up in Charleston, and that was on the sign out in front. You know, they had a traditional service, and then they had a contemporary service. And what that ends up typically doing is subjugating the congregation into two groups. You have, quote-unquote, the younger folks who want the contemporary service, And then you have the older folks who want the traditional service. And it's a very sad approach that a pastor would take and adopt. And he's mixed up when he does this, and he doesn't understand really how God grows churches and and how God wants to bless a a church, not through man-made techniques and methodologies, but through the principles that are found in Holy Scripture. Now, with that said, I am not one who advocates that every hymn that we need to sing is from the 17th century. Now, there are some rich hymns that come from the 18th and 16th, 17th, 18th century that are fantastic, many of which are totally unknown to the church, and then a number of um, hymns that came through the late 19th century and early 20th century through the Sunday school movement. Uh, that were really great and rich in theology, uh, some that were you know, very dated and maybe unique to that time frame, but some that really were timeless in terms of the way they were written. Many many Christmas hymns were written in this fashion, and so we continue to sing them because many of them, not all of them, some are poor in theology, but some are rich in theology and very, very well done and, and well written, and God has just honored them. What has happened, I think, in the history of the church is that as we have gotten away from teaching the Bible on Sunday morning, when a person sings these hymns, they're they're like a deer in the headlights. They don't even know what they're singing. The words are meaningless and empty to them, and and they're looking for something they can understand. And so we sing a lot of these little short um, snippets of truth that they can get a handle on that doesn't... Necessarily have much depth, depth to them. Now, I'm not necessarily criticizing some of those. I'm not criticizing even a chorus that's repeated over. Um, there's a basis for that, and they in the throne room of God, they're saying repeatedly, "Holy, holy, holy," is the Lord God of hosts. So, there's nothing wrong with even repeating a chorus um, over several times. But I think what we need to see is the way God grows at church is through the instrument of his word. How does God bring people to faith in Christ? Well, there's two parents in spiritual birth, just as there are two parents in physical birth. There's a dad and a mom. Well, in the spiritual birth of a believer, there's God, the Holy Spirit. You're born again of the Spirit on the one hand. On the other hand, the Bible says you're born not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about a genuine transformation. He also uses the Word of God as his instrument to grow us. So in spiritual growth, what we call sanctification, we're sanctified by the Spirit. He's the one who changes us, but he doesn't change us in a vacuum. He changes us through the Word of God. And so here's what I think should happen, is when a church just begins to open up and teach the Word of God. And I'm not saying just reading a passage and closing the Bible and a pastor telling a lot of cute little stories that have a lot to do with nothing. I'm talking about a pastor opening the Bible and actually teaching it. That's what is going to bring about genuine transformation. I I was sharing with our congregation recently, we had had Alistair Begg here in the last year, and his church is a little smaller than Community Bible Church of Buford. I think they run about 300 people less than we do. Um, but I think about that because he's a man who opens the Word of God, but he is surrounded by some churches of several thousand people. You would think, man, wouldn't wouldn't they want to go to Alistair Begg's church? I mean, he he tells it like it is, and he opens the Bible in an uncompromising way. Well, some people would. Um, And that's the kind of growth that really is the kind of growth you want to see rather than some of the churches around him with thousands of people in it that are fluff and no substance and mean very little. And some of them, I think, don't even have the gospel. So you can't always determine the health of a church by size. Sometimes size is an expression of health, but not always. You know, Charles Head and Spurgeon certainly had a huge church, But it's not always an expression of good, healthy growth. You know, a passage we often use uh, when we talk about the believer's coming judgment, there's a judgment that we face not for sin but for our service. And Paul is saying, "...if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire." The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What's the context of that? The context of that are concerns leaders in the church. Um, in how those leaders build God's church. That Paul laid the foundation through the preaching of the gospel and planted this church, but other workers, fellow workers, fellow laborers came in after him who built upon that foundation. And as some time had passed, there were some divisions in the church where people had uh, gravitated to one group over another. And so Paul is warning the leaders of the church, be careful how you build God's church. You don't want to use man-made wisdom. You want to use God's wisdom. And that's been the flow of the argument in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And so his point is, is that a wise leader will use the word of God as the instrument in which to build God's people and God's church. And that kind, of, um, that kind of approach is going to, at the judgment seat of Christ, produce gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, or straw. What would you rather have if it's going to be tested with fire, a truckload of hay or a handful of diamonds? I'd rather have a handful of diamonds because when you put fire to wood, hay, and stubble, it's consumed. And it's possible by implication of this passage for a believer pastor to use the wrong building materials that produces something that looks really big and magnificent, but in God's eyes, it's quite meaningless and insignificant. And so, to me, when a pastor—and, of course, the, the church I went by yesterday was a, a United Methodist Church, and you know, they're basically an apostate denomination. There's some rare exceptions here and there, but for the most part, they're totally apostate. Officially as a denomination, they deny biblical infallibility. They say the Bible has mistakes in it. They endorse homosexuality. They uh, support groups like Planned Parenthood, and on and on and on I could go. It's apostate. Um... And so what I find so interesting, though, is that a lot of these liberal denominations that don't even believe the Bible or often have the gospel are using the same Rick Warren, Bill Hybels kinds of techniques because they work. Of course they work because they're man-made, and they're not producing the kind of health that God's people need. So to me, um, if I were counseling a pastor, I'd say, look— Put first things first. You start teaching the word of God and really work at it and prepare because that's what you're called to do. The way a pastor shows his love for Jesus is not necessarily holding your hand in the hospital and praying with you and over you, though he might, and I'd love to be there for everyone, but first and foremost, by his time in prayer in the word of God. That's how he shows his love for Christ so that when the people of God come in and they look up, they don't leave hungry they leave fed. And when that happens, health begins to take place. And there'll be intergenerational interaction. I mean, how can you have two congregations of one old people and other young people when God in his word teaches the responsibility between those two generations and what they are supposed to do? So it's gimmicky is all I can say. And uh, it, it's a lot of fluff and it's not healthy.
0: All right, very good. Our next uh, listener is actually listening over the Internet on uh, uh, our website, WAGP.net, and they are writing from Telford, Tennessee. Lauren asks, is there still a need or um, a gift of speaking in tongues in today's churches? If not, what passages can you direct me to to prove this? I've heard of the belief that once you speak in tongues and then turn away from this, you're damned to hell and can lose your salvation. Is this true? I've also heard this called the unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about. Having read the story of the unpardonable
1: sin, it doesn't sound like Jesus was referring to tongues at all. Well, he wasn't referring to tongues at all. And this is maybe an opportunity for me to do a commercial beginning the last Wednesday night of this month in January. We will start a series called Unwrapping Your Spiritual Gift. And it's going to go many weeks, and we're going to look at the whole theology of spiritual gifts on Wednesday nights, how to find out your spiritual gift is, what it is. Um, You know, we'll look at the difference between natural talents and acquired skills and spiritual gifts and what gifts are functioning today, what gifts were maybe temporary in terms of their expression, uh, what gifts should show themselves publicly, what gifts, though equally important, don't necessarily have a public expression. And, and one uh, dimension of that course is we will look at the sign gifts in the New Testament and we'll look at tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. Now, what you're referring to by some people saying, well, if you speak negatively about the gift of tongues at all, then you are committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you're attributing evil to the work of the Holy Spirit, and you are committing an unpardonable sin. And so that's how they reason to that point. Well, of course, Jesus was not referring to the gift of tongues at all when that issue is raised in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 12. Um, Jesus said, all kinds of blasphemy can be forgiven men. Blasphemy against God the Father can be forgiven. Blasphemy against God the Son can be forgiven. But he said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, neither in this age or in the age to come. Now, some people would say that this is an impossible sin to reproduce in our day in the sense the way it was committed in Jesus's day is that as he literally physically walked upon the earth. They had rejected the father's testimony about Messiah through all the prophets. And Jesus told a number of parables about that, how he sent prophets and talking about God's son. And all they did was kill the prophets or spurn the prophets. So they rejected the testimony of God, the father, they rejected the claims that God, the son made about himself. There was only one testimony left. And that was the testimony of God, the Holy spirit as he worked and ministered through the Lord, Jesus, Uh, So Jesus, by the Spirit, he chose to live in dependence on the Spirit, did a triple miracle of sorts on one occasion, where a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb was healed, such that the blind man spoke and and he saw. So a demon's exercised, um, his uh, inability to speak is healed, and his inability to see is, is cured. And I mean, it's an undeniable miracle. And they say, well, this man did it by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus says, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, your logic isn't even logical. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they're your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's exactly what he did. So there was only one testimony left. It was clear. It was plain. It was a fulfillment of prophecy because this is what the Bible said Messiah would indeed do. If you remember when... Uh, Jesus um, encountered the disciples of John on one occasion. Uh, they, they came to the Lord Jesus because their leader was in, in in prison, and John said, "Should we be looking for you or someone else?" Because John, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, had a public ministry that only lasted about a year, and then he's in prison. And, of course, Messiah came to set the captives free, among other things. And John didn't understand fully about the two comings of Messiah because very often both comings of Messiah are brought together in a single passage. Isaiah will say, you know, when Messiah comes, his name will be called, you know, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Peace and so forth. And the governments will rest upon his shoulders, when did that ever happen? Well, it hasn't yet, but it will at a second coming. Or when Jesus goes, as recorded in Luke 4, into the um, synagogue there in Nazareth, and he opens up the Bible, and they hand him the scroll, and the Bible says he, he turns to a particular spot in the scroll, and the Isaiah scroll is a long scroll. It's the longest book in um Uh, Out of all the the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, one of what we call the major prophets, a 4th century designation given to certain prophets, not because they were more important, but because they were longer in length. Um, His prophecy, 66 chapters in our English Bible as it's been divided up, the Hebrew Bible follows the exact same division on this particular book. Uh, is longer than all the minor prophets put together. And so Jesus obviously knew the scriptures well. I mean, that's a big scroll. And so he turned right to the right spot and he read this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops right in the middle of a sentence in the middle of Isaiah 61 two. And of course, when he does that in Luke 4, verses 14 and following, he says, today this has been fulfilled. Well, the verse, if you kept reading, goes on and it describes events that will take place at the second coming, like the day of vengeance of our God. That hasn't happened yet, but it is coming. And so, you know, John the Baptist is in prison and he hasn't put all this together. And and so Jesus is answers his disciples' questions by just simply saying, go, go tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Um, he just quotes the passage um, from Isaiah 38, and this is what Messiah is going to do. So... Against plain evidence, the Pharisees rejected every possible witness. They rejected the witness of God the Father. They rejected the witness of God the Son. And on the testimony of two or three witnesses, Moses writes, everything is to be confirmed. And Jesus reaffirms that truth in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, There's no witness left. And they reject that. So they commit an unpardonable sin. And in one sense, it still can be committed today when God, the Holy Spirit begins to work on a person's life and he begins to convict them of their need to repent of their sin, to change their mind about sin and to look to Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness he can provide. And they keep putting God, the Holy Spirit off and telling him, no, Well, God, the Holy Spirit, who is given a number of different titles and designations, one of his titles in the Bible is, he is the spirit of truth. And when you say no to the spirit of truth, you're basically calling him a liar. You're saying, no, I I don't accept the truth that you are telling me. And there comes a point, as God warned in the book of Genesis chapter 6, my spirit will not always strive with men. And as he illustrates in the parable of the sower and other places where the Holy Spirit stops working, and then you basically have committed an unpardonable sin. You've crossed a line that you cannot cross back over, and you cannot be saved. But this has nothing to do with tongues or anything else. So what I would suggest, you're looking for a two-minute answer, and I can't give you one, but I have an eight-page handout, and so this person who emailed us, we will email them back with the attachment of that eight-page handout that deals with the subject of sign gifts in the New Testament, And for those who are interested in studying and dialoguing it, it begins in just a few weeks on Wednesday nights here at Community Bible Church. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right. Ethan from Dickinson, North Dakota asks, is it okay for a man married to a divorced woman to be a pastor? I I don't
1: think so. Um, And again, um, the, the principle in 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the qualifications for a elder. He says he must be a one-woman man. And so he's dealing with it, and and I've dealt with this on a number of occasions, and those who are interested, I have full messages on this. What does that mean, a one-woman man, or the husband of one wife, as it reads in our English Bible? Uh, There have been various interpretations in the history of the church. Some would say, well, one woman at a time, meaning he can't be a bigamist or a polygamist. Well, both bigamy and polygamy were against the law in the Roman culture, as in um, in the American culture. It's against the law, at least at this point, to have two wives or three or more. Uh, And so Mormons, of course, fought that for a long time. And finally, they had, quote, unquote, a new revelation and changed their theology and said, well, at this point in our teaching, you can only have one wife. Well, under the New Covenant, of course, a person wouldn't even be considered a believer, much less considered whether or not he should be uh, a candidate for a pastor or elder in a New Testament church. So to say, well, he's just saying there are people in the church who, you know, if they have two or more wives, they can't be an elder. They need to be a one-woman man, one woman at a time, is ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense under the New Covenant, much less under the Roman culture. Some, like Roman Catholics, who, of course, teach celibacy, say, well, the, the the church, the woman that he's married to is the church. So he's married to the church. So he has to be a, a man who's married to his, to his profession, so to speak. If he's going to move from being a deacon, which is what a Roman Catholic priest initially is, and then they up his status to priesthood, and of course he can go all the way to potentially to pope. But if he's going to be up to uh, that position— he has to be married to his, possession, to his church. Well, again, you're spiritualizing the text, and the children that he mentions that have to be under control are his congregants, and it's, it's just silly. You can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean if you come up with that kind of interpretation. Uh, so that's certainly, I don't think, in view. Some have said, well, this is a prohibition against someone being single uh, from serving in the pastorate. Well, if that would be true, then the Apostle Paul would be disqualified. Not to mention the chief shepherd, the chief elder of the church, the Lord Jesus, would be disqualified. Remember the word pastor, elder, bishop is used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office. And so all the apostles were elders, so to speak. Now, not all elders obviously are apostles, because to be an apostle, you had to be selected by Christ, seen the risen Lord, and confirmed with signs, wonders, and miracles. But all apostles were elders. And so Listen, if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. He calls himself in 1 Peter 5 a fellow elder. Um, And so Paul was single, and he actually says people who are gifted to be single by God, my, they can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So I don't think that's in view. I think what is in view is a prohibition against someone who's on a second marriage. I could go through some other interpretations, but listen to the tape. And again, it's not because God's down on divorced people. In any evangelical church today, probably over half of the average congregation is going to be people who are on second or third or fourth, whatever it is, marriages that they're on today. If you reach an unsaved world, then the sins of the world come into the church. But God, again, is in the business of protecting his people. And he wants to, when it comes to leadership offices, and there are only two remaining in the New Testament, the office of elder or deacon Um, it must be a man who's been married just once. And so your question is kind of the flip side of it. And by application, I would say no, even if he's only been married once and he's marrying a divorced woman, I would say no because, again, he can't model the ideal, which is what God is trying to do. So this is not an issue of forgiveness or divorced people serving in other places or having less reward when they get to heaven or being second-class citizens or anything like that. And even if every man in the church were qualified to be... Deacons or elders. There's only going to be in a in a lifetime of a church less than you know five to ten percent of the people who are going to serve anyway. So um, anyway, I hope that begins to answer your question. But you might want to listen to my message uh, uh, concerning First uh, Timothy three one to eight. I think you'd find that helpful. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, Emmanuel from Worcester, Mass, says: Can a believer lose their spiritual gift? And according to the Old Testament, the word of God or the word God spoke about. Moses, the, uh, this is two questions, actually. The, uh, the second being, uh, according to... Well, let me deal with the first okay. question
1: mm-hmm. first. Uh, Paul says in the book of Romans that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So when God gives a gift, he's not, if I can use a non-politically correct term, an Indian giver. He, he doesn't take it back. He doesn't say, oh, you know, you messed up a little bit. I don't think I'm going to give you the gift of evangelism anymore. Now, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He's very, very clear on that. That's uh, Romans 11, verse 29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The NASB uh, reads it. Now, it is possible for a person to have a spiritual gift and for that spiritual gift to go idle where they are not, expressing that gift in a manner in which they need to. And there can be different reasons. Sometimes they're out of fellowship with God. Sometimes they're intimidated, like Timothy was. And so Paul will write to young Timothy, don't don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. Uh, stir up the gift of God within you. Use it. Exercise it. Express it. Uh, be bold in its use of it.
0: Okay. I, I reread this a little bit, and the second part is uh, relevant to this. Okay. He, he writes, according to the Old Testament, the word God spoke about, Moses that God took the spirit that was upon Moses and placed it on Joshua, uh, does this mean that Moses is no longer anointed, and uh, can the enemy of our soul steal our faith?
1: Yeah, no, what, what was taking place there was God was anointing new leadership, much like when Elijah passed the mantle on to Elisha. Uh, a new leader was anointed. And so this happens at the end of Moses' life, And Moses, in essence, passes the mantle under God's supervision to Joshua. And, of course, God affirms that when the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, comes to the Lord, the captain of the Lord of hosts in Joshua 1. So, no, it was just a a transfer. And understand, too, the relationship of Old Testament saints to the Spirit of God was different than from us. Again, that's why even John, after he came and he... He has some questions about, uh, I just want to make sure, Lord, I didn't mess up here. Uh, Go ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Uh, You know, I just wanted to make sure I didn't mess up in terms of announcing Messiah because I'm still in prison. It looks like I'm going to lose my life. And, And he just quotes scripture to him. And then after he says it, he says, listen, no one ever born of a woman was greater than John. But then he makes this statement that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because we're New Covenant saints where the Spirit of God comes to indwell us, and he comes to permanently indwell us. So it is true, sometimes the Spirit of God could leave as he departed from Saul, and David saw that. He saw because of Saul's rebelliousness the Spirit of God depart from him, and in that great confessional Psalm 51 in the English Bible, he prays, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's not a new covenant prayer. That's an old covenant prayer, because God the Holy Spirit would never be removed from us. Now, he could stop filling us, but he would never leave us. But the examples that you're dealing with would say Moses or other examples that we could point to, like with Elijah and Elisha, those were planned examples by God as he passed his anointed mantle of leadership from one man to another. Well, there's still a lot of questions that came in, and we just didn't get to them. But God willing, we will, in our next time together, explore these. We have a new Bible line hotline if you want to call in anytime, 24 hours, and select the right button. You can dictate the question like you're on the air. Pastor Carl, here's my question. Give it, and we'll try to answer it. God bless you. Have a great day.